All right, good morning. Welcome to yet another week of our being scattered together. Next week will be one year complete uh, of us being scattered together like this. Thank you for your faithfulness in gathering uh, week after week. It is an incredible uh, support and joy to me, and I pray it is a support and joy to you as well. Uh, thanks as well. I hope you're as excited as I am about that update uh, that we shared with you about uh, the potential of hiring Dave and this uh, associate pastor of youth and young adults role. The, the members would have seen that update last week in our trimesterly meeting, but we wanted to pass on that information uh, to everyone who's a part of this gathering because some of you who are not members I know have uh, kids of that youth age, and so we wanted to, you to know how we're moving ahead to try to serve that, that really important need, that incredible age group uh, in our church, and so um, there'll be some more things to say about that immediately following this message, but uh, continue to pray with us uh, about that as a church, uh, that God's will would be accomplished uh, in this path that we're moving forward on. Uh, we're going to come to a time here now in this moment, though, where we're going to do what we do each Sunday. We're going to look at a passage from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, a Bible app, whatever it is, would you open it to our passage today? Uh, Matthew chapter 5, we're going to focus on verse 8 today. Um, but as we've done each week, we're going to read into it beginning at verse 1. So follow along with me here. Matthew writes this. Seeing the crowds, he, this is Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's God's word. Uh, let me pray for us quickly, and then we'll dive into this passage together. Spirit of God, would you illumine now the preaching of your word? Open up eyes and ears and minds to receive what it is you want to speak to us today through this word and accomplish the purpose for which you sent it out. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Amen. Okay, so, no. No. No, maybe, maybe I didn't know everything about uh, how the whole system worked, all the rules and everything about how it worked as it related to seeing him. And yet one thing, even from a very young age, that I knew very clearly was this, that I had better watch out. I had better not cry, and I had definitely better not pout. I'll tell you why, because Santa Claus was coming to town. He was coming, which, of course, that's, that's a good thing, right? Like, yeah, he's coming to bring toys for all the good girls and boys of the world, and yet there was just one really important problem with that, namely, this, this Santa guy, he could see me when I was sleeping. He knew when I was awake, and worst of all, he knew if I'd been bad or good, and so as the Words of that now well-known Christmas carol warned, if you want to see Santa showing up at your house on Christmas, you, you better be good. You better be good for goodness sake. And I mentioned that uh, happy bit of nostalgia 
as we continue in our teaching series this morning through the Gospel of Matthew and looking at this opening section of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount called the Beatitudes in particular because when it comes to this sixth Beatitude, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God, the reality is that for many of us, we have transferred that very same understanding of managing behavior, uh, being good for goodness sake in order to see Santa. We've transferred that understanding onto this beatitude. That is, we believe, even if we wouldn't maybe say it this way out loud, we believe that God has got a, a good list and a naughty list. And for those who've been good enough, pure enough, yeah, they'll have a chance of seeing God. But for the rest of us who can't, well, sorry, we're just going to keep getting put at the back of that three-hour lineup at the mall until we can. Leading well, leading some of us, I'd say many of us, to, to try to just dig in and try all the harder to try to muster up enough goodness, muster up enough, enough purity so that we'll be able to finally enjoy this blessed reward and be able to see God ourselves. But leading others to begin to wonder if seeing God is really worth going through all the trouble for in the end. And yet, I believe that when you rightly understand both what Jesus means when he describes these blessed citizens of the kingdom as being pure in heart, and when you understand the staggering reality and the reward that Jesus promises to those who are, I believe, first of all, you'll see how possible it is for citizens of the kingdom to be pure in hearts. And secondly, you'll see that the sight of God, the sight of God, is absolutely something that's worth waiting for. And so, in order to help us get to, to that understanding, I want to just show you two things very quickly this morning from our passage. I want to show you the true path to purity and then a sight worth waiting for. True path to purity and a sight worth waiting for. So if you close your Bible, your Bible app, whatever it is, would you open them again with me to our passage here, Matthew 5, Verse 8 is where we're focusing. Follow along with me now as we hopefully, by God's grace, can kind of untangle this beatitude from some of the harmful ways that it's been used and misunderstood in the past and, and get to see and understand the truly blessed reality for all citizens of the kingdom who are pure in heart. Okay, so let's look first of all at the true path to purity. The true path to purity, and, and I want to just acknowledge right from the start that of all the Beatitudes, of, of all the eight Beatitudes here, I felt like this one in particular was going to be the most difficult to tackle from a teaching perspective. Uh, not because of any kind of uh, textual anomalies or, or words that are difficult to interpret, but because as we're seeing emerge more and more in this particular cultural moment that we're living in today, I know that for some people, this beatitude in particular carries with it uh, a tremendous amount of spiritual and, and, and emotional baggage for you. And the reason is, is because this passage itself, as well as certain other passages in the Bible that rightly call kingdom citizens to pursue moral purity in their lives, the, these passages have been, were, were used as tools to coerce to, to 
control, to, to shame and manipulate people, especially young people and especially young women, into a pattern of moral conformity that saw you as either in or on the outside looking in. Kind of generally speaking, a, a, a culture and a way of approaching the scriptures that you'll often hear today referred to as purity culture and, and not referred to positively. Like just, just one heartbreaking example of this being uh, the true story a well-known pastor from the U.S., relates about a, a young adult's event that he attended when he was in college and that he had invited uh, a friend to come along with him who happened to be a single mother, where the speaker that night, talking about the subject of sexual purity, had, had taken a beautiful red rose and thrown it out into the audience and told the students, hey, pass that around. Uh, get, get a sense, feel the rose, smell it, uh, feel the, the petals. Only upon receiving back later on that, that badly battered, bent, all jacked up rose later, chose to conclude his visual illustration of the importance of sexual purity by looking and holding up this rose and asking the students, now who would want this? And so what, what feels like an impossible tightrope that I now have the privilege and the responsibility of trying to walk through with us this morning in light of such horrific misuses of passages like the one we're looking at today is on the one hand along with the pastor that that first shared that story I want to say first of all Jesus does Jesus wants that that rose and no matter what choices you may have made over the course of your life they in no way disqualify you from grace while at the same time, on, on the other hand, wanting to also acknowledge the truth that obedience to God, per, pursuit of purity as kingdom citizens is not irrelevant to God. That God's just now like, oh, you know what, now it doesn't matter. You don't, don't, don't worry about all that trying to be pure stuff. Just live your life. You do you. Like, and, and honestly, that, that's where I feel like both sides kind of miss what Jesus is actually saying in this beatitude. Because again, as I mentioned each week, first of all, the beatitudes are a description of someone who's already a citizen of the kingdom. And so where those who use God's call to purity to frighten and shame people into moral conformity get it wrong, is they ignore the incredible reality that in Jesus, we already are seen as pure. As we read, for instance, Hebrews 10, 14, by his one sacrifice, he, that is Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And so like the religious rulers of Jesus' day, all they do is, is lead people back into trying to earn a purity before God that they already have in Christ through their restrained behavior. But where, where, where I often see those who rightly push back against that view getting it wrong as well is by swinging the pendulum way too far to the other extreme. And, and like a libertarian, ignoring the fact that we are also not to continue in sin that grace may abound, as Paul says in Romans 6. That God still calls those who've been purified by Christ's sacrifice to strive to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they've been called. As we read in Ephesians 4, it's, it's almost exactly as Martin Luther once said, describing uh, the human mind, the human heart, the human nature. He said, human nature is like a drunk man trying to ride a horse. 
He no sooner recovers from falling off one side before he immediately begins falling off the other. And yet the balance to Jesus' teaching here, if there is indeed a balance to be found here, I believe is in seeing the blessed identity of kingdom citizens that Jesus describes in this beatitude. Look, look again at the words of verse 8. The, the, the language he uses to describe this blessed citizen in this beatitude is not, note, is not blessed are the pure. But blessed are the pure in heart. Not blessed are the pure, those who can be pure enough, Blessed are the pure in heart. And maybe you'd say, um, that's the same thing, dude. Like, there's, there's no difference. To which I would say, actually, I think there's, there's a big difference. And, and that difference makes all the difference in the world. Because here's the thing. Throughout the Bible, the heart, the heart, when it speaks about, is, is, is understood neither as a physical organ just pumping blood through the entire body alone, nor is it seen as some kind of, in some kind of poetic sense, as the source of romantic feelings and emotions alone. No, the heart is understood in the Bible as the source of, of a person's thoughts, like their mind, their will, their emotions, their conscience, like everything. All these things, the heart is seen as the seat and the source of those things. So this is why in response to the religious rulers complained about Jesus' disciples' behavior a little bit later in Matthew 15. In this instance, they hadn't performed the right ritual washings before eating. Jesus responds to their criticism by saying, you hypocrites. Well did Isaiah speak of you when he said, when, uh, in his prophecy, when he said about you, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Going on a little bit later to speaking to his disciples and saying, don't you see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defiles a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Strange to read that in a COVID age, but let's not get, let's not get off track here. But just, they take that now and just think about the implications of that as it relates to this beatitude in Jesus' teaching on purity. For, for on the one hand, Jesus clearly says these actions, murder, adulteries, sexual immorality, theft, like this is not an exhaustive list, just a representative. These actions do, in fact, defile a person. That is, make them impure. And yet, Jesus also says that where these defiling actions proceed from is from the heart. Which means, listen, in seeking to be pure, if all of your focus is just on managing behavior, being good for goodness sake, then you'll completely miss the heart, which Jesus says is the source and the root of all those behaviors that you're trying to manage. Completely miss it. Uh, for as Thomas Cranmer is credited as saying, what the heart loves, the will chooses and the mind justifies. Now hear me. And no point in this am I saying that, that behavior, our behavior doesn't matter. Please, please don't email me this week saying, oh, you're saying it's fine to... no. And listen, as a parent of two incredible teenage daughters, I absolutely get the desire to want to manage behavior. 
uh, uh, to see our kids pursue a life of purity as citizens in the kingdom, just, just as I desire that for myself, for my, for my wife, for our whole family. But listen, the hard reality that I think we have to acknowledge and look at is that far too often, and listen, I, I, I'm guilty of this myself more often than I'd like to admit, and this is like failure among failures here, far too often we will settle for, we're actually happy about And we'll even pat ourselves on the back for having succeeded in our parenting when we produce a child that simply honors God with their lips, but whose heart is miles away from Him. Far too often, we're just like, oh, have you got a good GPA? Not doing drugs, not watching porn, didn't have sex before marriage. Winning, even if their heart... They want nothing to do with Jesus. We, we say, oh, you know what? Succeeded as parenting. Really? That, that's winning? As I recall, Jesus described the religious rulers and Pharisees of his day who had that same kind of external moral obedience but whose hearts were far from him. He called them whitewashed tombs. He said, yeah, yeah, you look great on the outside, but in the inside you're full of dead men's bones. There's no life in you. I think far too often we're satisfied, we're happy with honoring a child that just honors God with their lips, but their heart is actually not seeking Jesus at all. Because that's the thing. To to pursue blessed are the pure, either for your kids or even for yourself, instead of blessed are the pure in heart, is the same as, as mowing over a lawn filled with dandelions and imagining that you've dealt with your weed problem. It's not the path. So, okay, so, so what does it mean to pursue purity of heart over either external purity alone or just abandoning purity altogether? What, what does it mean? What does it look like? I, I think a perfect example of what that could look like is seen in the life of someone like King David, uh, which is why I'm so glad that we spent that concentrated time looking at his life in that series a little over a year ago because when, when you look at the life of someone like King David... By no means is he an example of perfect moral purity. No, right? Like, sure, like, yeah, he loved God. He, he, he wrote a, a number of the Psalms. Um, he, he defeated Goliath as Israel's representative. And yet, as we also know, the guy, he, he committed adultery and actually in many ways used his position of power and privilege in order to manipulate and, and, and bring about that sexual relationship with Bathsheba. And then when she becomes pregnant, has her husband make sure that he's killed in order to cover up his sin, like, yeah, he's, he's by no means a, a picture of moral purity. And yet, even despite his many failings, David is still described by God as a man after his own heart. How? How is that possible? Well, the reason for that, as we said repeatedly through that series, was not that David was perfectly pure in every one of his actions, but what the reason was that the orientation of his heart was consistently fixed on God alone or was, was reoriented, refocused back on God whenever he discovered that the focus of his heart had wandered. That's why. Which actually fits perfectly with this sixth beatitude from our passage today because, listen, more than, than cleanness, more than, than freedom from guilt or stain, the sense of pure, as Jesus is using it here in verse 8, is actually to be unmixed, to be 
undiluted, pure in that sense. Which means essentially you could read this sixth beatitude as Jesus saying, blessed are those citizens in my kingdom with a pure, undivided heart towards me. With a pure, undivided heart. Why? Because what you see and again and again throughout Scripture is that what God desires most from citizens of his kingdom is not conformity to a pattern of religion, but your heart. He want, doesn't want your restraint. He wants relationship. Think about it. What, what, what does Jesus say is, is the greatest commandment? The, the, the one rule above all others that we're supposed to follow in all of Scripture. What does he say? To love God. To love the Lord your God, quoting there from Deuteronomy 6.5, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and your mind and your strength, with, with, to love him with everything. Why? Because, listen, because out of a heart focused on and oriented towards God with undivided affection will flow pure behavior. That's the path, right? It's, again, it's not that behavior doesn't matter. It means the true path to purity is not your behavior but the orientation of your heart. One will lead to pure behavior, but pure behavior does not lead to an undivided heart. So whenever you're trying to address some pattern of sin in your life where you continue to fail or, or you're discipling someone struggling in this way, rather than focusing on restraining behavior, like, oh, this is what you're doing, let's help you stop that, Look to the root of that behavior, first of all, and ask, what is competing for the focus and attention here of the heart? What's, what's competing for the focus and attention of your heart? For in David's prayer, following his adultery with Bathsheba, recorded for us there in Psalm 51, he didn't ask God to help him deal with his lust problem to take away his lust, uh, to provide stronger accountability in his life and in his marriage, all, all things which are important and would help him. Instead, no, he prayed, create in me a clean heart, O God. Because he knew that that was the path to real purity. That was the, the way to truly get to it. Okay, so that's the true path to purity. Again, through the heart, the orientation of the heart, not behavior, which is why Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. The last thing I want to look at together with you is what Jesus says is the blessed reward for citizens of his kingdom that are pure in heart, namely, that they will see God. And so let's look lastly at a sight worth waiting for. A sight worth waiting for. And this reward that Jesus lists here for those who are pure in heart, it, it, it's almost too incredible for a citizen of the kingdom to even fathom. To, to see at last the one who gave everything in order to secure our redemption, in order to save us, and on whom we strive daily to keep the affections of our heart fixed, to see God. To see him, it just... It just boggles our imagination. All through the scriptures, you see that as the, 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 the great desire of people's hearts. I mean, because that's the thing. Here's the thing that we need to just remind ourselves of. The great hope of heaven, the great hope of, of that promised heaven that we're all looking towards is, is not eternal life. 
It's not freedom from all the effects of sin's curse. It's not being reunited with all the loved ones who've passed on before or or even having every tear wiped from our eyes. No, above all others, the greatest hope of heaven for every citizen of the kingdom is what John records for us in Revelation 22, 4. And they will see his face. We've all heard stories of the powerful experience of, of meeting uh, the family whose departed loved one has provided the, the heart or, or the liver or, or whatever it is through organ donation that, that kept this person alive, to see their faces. Uh, uh, Holocaust survivors who, who get to meet the, the man or the woman whose actions uh, brought about their, their safety and, and ability to make it through uh, that horrific experience. Uh, In thinking of examples like these, I imagine the desperate longing at last fulfilled when Jocelyn Elliott will one day we continue to pray, look on the face of her kidnapped husband once again. Continue to pray to that end for uh, for, for that seeing of his face. And yet, as incredible as each of these sights are to the ones who experience them, even they, Even they cannot even begin to compare with the endless, eternal joy of seeing God, the reward for those who are pure in heart. Uh, uh, An experience beautifully captured, I believe, by that song written by Mercy Me some years ago, I Can Only Imagine. Do you know it? The chorus that that, that sings, surrounded by your glory, what, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in awe of you be still? Will I stand in your presence? Or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine. See his face. Oh, I long for that. And yet something you perhaps wondering about as you consider this promised reward for the pure in heart, which I hope you see is absolutely is just worth waiting for. question maybe you're asking yourself as well is, okay, but is there any sense, because that's great, but is there any sense in which this promise of seeing God is also for right now, like today? I mean, John, one of Jesus' closest disciples, speaks of this blessed experience at the beginning of his gospel, stating, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth, to which we would say, Well, how, how nice for you. But, but what about us? What about you and, and me in 2021? Is this promised reward now only something that we can wait to experience? And the answer, I think, is no. No. This is, I, I believe this is not solely a, a promised reward for the future. And the reason that I say that is because of something Jesus says later in Matthew 25. Speaking of the last judgment when all nations will stand before him, and to those who are on his right, those who are true citizens of his kingdom, Jesus says he will say, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But then he goes on, adding, For I was hungry and you gave me food. 
I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was prison and you came to me. And Jesus describes the confusion, like the looking around, huh? Kind of response of these blessed ones who have no recollection whatsoever of ever seeing or serving Jesus in any of these ways, to which Jesus says he will reply, truly I say to you, as much as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. And, and, and reading that, it just, it just makes me wonder if that isn't exactly the way in which the pure in heart truly can, in, in some sense anyways, see God today, now, in this life as well, as, as those who are pure in heart, meek and seeking to work justice for and being merciful to others. If we couldn't be given eyes to see Jesus' face in the faces of the people that we love and serve in his name, Because Jesus says that as we do these things to the least of them, we're doing them for him. If we couldn't be given eyes to see Jesus in the face of those people we're serving in his name. I, I, I'm almost certain I've experienced this kind of thing countless times myself. I wonder if that hasn't been your experience as well. In this famous passage on love, 1 Corinthians 13, Paul concludes this way. For now... We see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, which I think says conclusively, you know, yeah, we, we most certainly do see God in some sense, even now in this life, even if it's only a dim reflection of the fullness of what we will enjoy one day, we do see now just in a mirror dimly, then face to face, going on to say now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. In 1 John 3, 2, uh, the beloved apostle there reminds us this, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is, adding this important reminder in the very next verse, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. In other words, notes D.A. Carson, according to John, the Christian purified himself now because pure is what he will ultimately be. His present efforts are consistent with his future hope. And yet as we seek to have this blessed description of purity and heartbeat be more and more true of us today as, as citizens of the kingdom, I think understanding now what Jesus means by that description, that we are not, not blessed are the pure, but blessed are the pure in heart, I think it should force each one of us to pause and, and, and honestly reflect and examine the, the focus and, and the, the direction and orientation of our hearts. To pause and really ask, ask the question, does love and affection for Jesus take the primary place in my heart? Is that the primary focus of my heart on a day-to-day -day basis? Or do I, do I sense or, or really do I know that there are other things in my life right now for which Jesus is in regular competition for that place and for that focus? What's the focus and orientation of my heart? For, for some of us, 
the answer to that question will be obvious. It'll be like, nah, I know what it is. I know I need to deal with that. I know I need to work on that. But for others, the answer to that question, I think, will come actually by examining the strength of your desire to see God, both now as well as on that future day, to examine the strength of your desire for this reward of this blessing. For as Michael Green rightly notes, double vision, a divided heart, he says, reduces our capacity to focus and mars the joy of the vision of God. So I think that's another way to see uh, if, if there's things competing for the affections of our heart, if our desire to see God is actually waned. And yet, here's the good news. Regardless of what you discover, wh- whether it's uh, people, things, or passions that you know are in direct competition with Jesus for the focused attention of your heart, or simply the waning of your desire for the blessed reward of being pure in heart, the solution is actually one and the same. It's not by seeking to manage or control your behavior, nor is it by trying to stir or whip up the affections of your heart for the thing that you know you're supposed to want above all other things. No. No, once again, it's in returning to the need beatitudes out of which these help beatitudes flow. Those first four beatitudes, the need beatitudes Focusing and returning to them, out of which these help beatitudes flow. And like David, from your poverty of spirit, your mourning over sin, your meekness and your hungering and thirsting for righteousness, praying simply, create in me a clean heart, O God. Create in me a pure, undivided heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. For as David goes on to pray in Psalm 51, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart, the, the source of our erring behavior. Going on to say, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Again, through our behavior is not the path. That's not the path to purity. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit's. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. May, may purity in heart, purity as, as Jesus describes it here, an undivided heart and devotion towards him above all other things, may that purity in heart be more and more a description of us as kingdom citizens. And by it, by that purity, By that purity of heart, may we enjoy both our present experience as well as our ultimate future fulfillment of Jesus' promised reward to see his face. Amen. Amen.